The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Audio Book Club for the month of January 2018. I'm Katie Waldman, a staff writer at Slate, and I'm joined today in the DC studio by Laura Bennett, Slate's features editor. Hi, Laura. Hi, Katie. And from New York, uh, we have New York Times book critic and dear friend of the podcast, Parl Segal. Hello. Hey, Katie. Um, And just before we get to the book, um, a brief uh, bit of housekeeping. This is going to be my last episode as the host of Slate's Audiobook Club. I love Slate and I love the Audiobook Club, and it's been a total privilege and pleasure to do this show every month. So it's a very sad, sad day. (laughs) Dark day. I'm going to be a staff writer at The New Yorker writing on their website about books and culture and language and things. Great for them. Very sad for us. Um, and we're going to miss you a lot. You've been uh, you've been so good at this, Katie Waldman. And the one thing we did want to say is that uh, we are going to update you on the future of the audiobook club uh, at a later date. So watch this space um, in the wake of uh, the Katie Waldman era. Oh. Well, I will miss you guys a lot. And before this devolves into a cry <laughs> fest and you guys just need to like put it this on be time the whole 15, podcast, yeah. <laughs> have fun three hours later. Um, our book, our book this month is Her Body and Other Parties. It is Carmen Maria Machado's debut collection of stories, which have made her a finalist in the National Book Awards. Um, these stories have been compared to urban legends and to genre fiction, sci-fi, erotica, and horror. Um, but most of all, they have been compared to fairy tales, or I guess we've said that they draw a lot on all of these genres. And I guess I wanted to start by asking you guys whether you saw these stories as fairy tales. Or, or saw them as as um as drawing on fairy tales, because I didn't. Spoiler. Whoa! <laughs> what? Oh my goodness! Well, like, yeah, Katie, hey. why don't you lay out? <laughs> it's a lady of you. Uh, why don't you lay out your reasoning for why you also, didn't think they're fairy Katie, tales? How dare you? Okay, go on. <laughs> dare you, Katie? I know, and this is also very off-brand because I tend to be obsessed with fairy tales and think that all things are sort of like but kneeling at the altar of fairy tales. Why? Why don't you see it? Well, so first of all, I mean, they seem incredibly rowdy and like sort of more sophisticated and humanist, mm-hmm. and also like not invested in like traditional norms or rules or didacticism like they're not stories that you would tell to like keep society together or warn women to act a certain way instead they seem very interested in sort of undoing the the rules that we live by and sort of transforming society for the better and i would also say that there's something about the sort of narrative intelligence in a fairy tale that is very indifferent to the characters and kind of yeah. cold and maybe apathetic and is just sort of like playing dolls with these with these stick figures and i think the narrative intelligence in this book is so sort of warm and vital and there's so much tenderness for the women and their bodies and their desires that just the experience of reading these stories it didn't at all feel to me like reading fairy tales but could it be like I mean, could it be related to fairy tales in the same way that, like, Angela Carter or Shirley Jackson play with that or updating it or giving it a different, like, giving the traditional fairy tale a different, more feminist cast? I think that is probably the correct and smart take on this. But I guess, like, even Angela Carter seemed a little bit more 
cold and sharp edged. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. she writes mm-hmm. with amazing mm-hmm. sort of passion and and life, but there is there is less sympathy yeah, for the people that she's right. yeah. 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 No, I think I agree. I mean I think that for me this does feel infused with fairy tales. I don't know if I would call these fairy tales explicitly. I mean I think the thing that I like so much about Machado is um I think she has like the kind of indifference to genre that I myself have, you know, I think mm-hmm. she reminds me of like how when we start reading, you're not really reading in terms of form or you're not, you know, like it's just this kind of way that she has of glutting herself on stories and picking and choosing from so many different genres, you know, I mean, and not in a way yeah. that feels like she's mashing it together to make some sort of like, you know, Frankenstein's creature, but it's just, it feels very organic. And, but I do think that, um, what she takes from fairy tales in terms of certain kinds of imagery, in terms of certain kinds of ways that she knows her reader will react or expect a certain kind of uh, plot twist or development, that feels to me conscious and playful. Uh, I think that point about detachment is completely correct. And like these are pieces that are just so filled with tenderness for these women. You know, even she puts them through, she, takes, she sends them to hell and back, but they're filled with like love and, and uh, affection and care. I think uh, that is exactly right. I, I agree with that. I mean, what I find so fascinating about these stories is the way she mixes this sort of unbelievably, unbelievably imaginative and bizarre imagery with more kind of familiar, worn tropes and concepts. Like I think of uh, the girls with bells for eyes, right. so strange and so inventive, demanding, give us voices, give us voices, which is this more sort of literal, familiar, uh, you know, Image and then the toes among the potatoes and oh, the yeah. and the I loved the husband stitch so much I think that's my favorite story in the yeah. in the anthology and the her father's comment that you know if there really were toes in the potatoes wouldn't other people have seen them too mm-hmm. which is an anecdote used to illustrate uh, you know that there are true things in the world observed only by a single set of eyes which is she yeah. was what yeah. she says it's sort of this perverse and eerie take on the feminist mantra believe women. So she's kind of estranging the tenets of feminism over and over again, using these really vivid and bizarre images. And that, I think, is what I loved most about. uh, So she has a way of, of, you know, her, she, she's playing this game with sort of personal and the universal that works really well, because her imagery is so otherworldly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the potato moment is just incredible because you sort of get the sense of, no, you don't, you don't trust the world. You trust the woman. And so you can sort of see like this is a, this is a world that is not too different from the one that we live in. And you can kind of imagine that she is arguing that in fact, we don't, we don't notice. We, we, our eyes just skim over these truly graphic and ghastly realities um right and i think like that is definitely part of her project too it reminds me of when she wonders in that same story the husband stitch if perhaps men have ribbons that do not look like ribbons Mm -hmm. which is just such a fascinating way to wonder whether you know where men are vulnerable and and sort of marvel at the fact that their vulnerability is so much harder to target uh ah, just uh just so interesting yeah and i think i think for me um just to tie this back into the sort of point that Katie made about fairy tales and fairy tales being didactic in certain ways. You know, I think about, like, if fairy tales as we now know them, as they've maybe been collected and developed and honed over the years, but if you go back and you read, like, 
I was reading for, for another piece I'm writing some of these like old Native American fables and stuff like that, and how like um, they're really like they really do remind me of of some of Machado's work because they're very suggestive, they're very elusive, but they're mm. not. It's not clear sometimes exactly. There's like a dream logic, you know, so you can recognize it. Yes. You can feel like it's pushing you towards this, but there really isn't a moral or mess, immoral or message. So, I, so, I mean, the thing upon this reading, you know, so reading it last night to, to prepare for our chat, I was really surprised at like, you know, she plays with themes, she plays with questions, but I don't feel herded into a conclusion, which makes me really like some of these pieces, you know, yes, and I, I, that's really nice put. I mean, you can say some of them are explicitly feminist, I guess you can say some of them are about believe women, maybe, but like, they're, I don't know, they just, they're such like, you know, quick silver little things that like, you know, and I think she's, she's very, she's too subtle as a writer, and she's too much of an artist to have like a real sense of like, this is the moral, and this is the message. And I kind of feel like one of the things I want to, I mean, I hope we'll talk about today is, just why this book was so beloved. I was making a list of all the awards it's won and been long listed for. And I don't think that there's been a more prize winning book this year, frankly, you know, and I'm curious. I also in rereading reviews. I couldn't find a single critical note. I have about like, like uh, on my, this, on this pad of paper right here, about like 20 things, like 20 awards. I mean, it's just, so maybe like we can sort of like think through, uh, I mean, it's a brilliant book, but is it is it striking at this particular moment of time? You know, like that, why this mm. particular resonance? Yeah, well, I definitely want to get to like what it is like reading some of these stories mm, right as now, yeah. just like the conversation about sexual harassment or just like, it has just like gained so much complexity. We're not just talking about rape versus not rape. We're talking right, about right. like what makes good sex. And, and I think like, this book, there, there's that moment in the um, in the Law and Order story where Benson goes on a date with someone who says, <laughs> "Oh, I'm just so sick of the PC brigade, but I, I do, I do think rape is terrible," <laughs> and and it's just such a like funny wink at at the sort of energies uh, in our in our culture at this moment. But to go back to your earlier point, I do think that something, I guess that is what I meant. When I sort of did the slate pitch about fairy tales, that there's such a sort of open-ended and unresolved mm-hmm. and fluid quality to these stories that they felt almost to me more like Ovid, like a little bit more like metamorphosis, just be, the way like she has these transformations of trauma, like the raped woman with her tongue com- cuts out becomes a nightingale. That's an Ovid thing. But, you know, the raped woman suddenly acquires a magical ability to hear the thoughts of porn stars. Yeah, and agree. there's this sort of sense that that something terrible could is just the flip side of something sort of wondrous. And, and there, I, again, this is just a less articulate way of saying that she can't or she doesn't really settle on on any particular event meaning something good or bad morally or even positive or negative for the life of the of the woman. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, I it's, it's one of the uh, pieces I most liked about this book that I remember reading was in Book Forum, well, aside obviously from Harl's beautiful piece in the New York Times <laughs> about this book. Um, clearly, clearly, that goes without saying. But uh, that review quoted uh, Asia Ardento's quote in The New Yorker about how Harvey Weinstein was like a big fat man wanting to eat you. Like it's a scary fairy tale. Um, and it does feel particularly interesting to read this book at a moment where it feels like, you know, all men from famous men to the men in our actual lives are getting held up in this eerie new light 
and sort of we're wondering at all the things we've taken for granted and rethinking what kind of behavior counts as monstrous. And it feels like this sort of mythic cultural moment. But what I like so much is the way the sexism in this book, and this sort of feels appropriate for this mythic cultural moment, is depicted as something almost rootless and floating. Like it's in everything, including the women themselves and the, you know, the men we love. And part of the horror of these horror stories is that it is exactly how diffuse the sexism is and how we've absorbed it and how difficult it is to pin down and extract. Mm. And, you know, the villain is hard to name. You know, it's not the patriarchy. And the men seem kind of hazy and mythic in this book, but they're complicated too, even yeah. as they're kind of fairy tale characters. I think that's really smart. And just I loved in the in the Law and Order story, which it basically takes the form of I think two hundred and seventy two synopses, right? Of, there's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> it's really um, a of lot. these sort of fantastical Law and Order SVU episodes, and sort of this recurring motif is a heartbeat that is thrumming underneath the city, um, yeah. and it's kind of the subway and kind of not. Like in a way, it's sort of just the subterranean forces of of human interaction both love and and violence and pleasure and pain and um one of the great achievements of sort of using the subway as a metaphor for this is it really it connects all of us as well as just sort of like suffusing all of our lives like we are sort of united by this network of of abuse and violence towards women and also sort of like a lust for for sensation um, and it, it felt not like a woman thing. It felt like a human thing. It felt like a person thing. Um, and I thought that was just really fascinating and also sort of gave new weight to the metaphor of the women with the – or the ghosts with the bells for eyes because that, to me, free associated into like if you see something, say something. But for <laughs> these for these ghosts, like you can either – you can either see or you can speak and for some of these uh, – for some of these characters, you can either speak or you can see um, and sort of the ideal would be able to – would be um, – being able to both understand and know the world that you're that you live in and also to speak about it and communicate about it um that's a i don't know maybe yeah. a reach no that's that's good it's great no i think that's beautiful and I, I i actually like i'm struck that i didn't pay more attention to the way the subway was <clears throat> and like the heartbeat was functioning in that in the law and order story but i do um did you guys happen to read? She did this this great interview with the Paris Review about writing that particular story and the sort of genesis of it. Um, if you haven't, I did so, read that. That was a great, great interview. It's great. It's great. So she had this like she had swine flu while living alone. And I know. She, <laughs> I know. So she was starting to watch on Netflix Law and Order, and it was just like one episode was looping into another, and she was just like sick and passing in and out of consciousness, and. It's, I mean, it's a story that could be in this book, and this is context that, you know, we live amongst other stories. You know, we live, like, in the context of looping law and order, which will go on and outlive us, you know, and our, um, so, I mean, this idea, I think, maybe also, I think, has resonance now, this, uh, you know, that all these stories are nested in, in every story we hear, you know, and, and, um, all these different stories of trauma and suffering, and, I mean, my favorite story in this particular book is, is the husband's ditch and you know this woman is sort of describing her marriage and keeping the secret from her husband but it's interspersed with all of these stories you know from childhood or from fairy tales about terrible things happening to other women horrible things 
you know, and, and sort of you just really realize, I, I mean, some of these stories, like, they're jokes, and, and I just realized I hadn't heard some of them since I was so young. You know, this idea of the bride yeah. who goes, plays hide-and-seek, mm-hmm. and I was like, when do we start telling women these, these stories, mm-hmm. you know, in this sort of, like, very light way? I was, I was appalled, almost, um, yeah. when I first heard some of these, but... You know, I think Katie was your, was husband stitch your favorite story also. It was actually, mm-hmm. although or, there were there are some mm-hmm. there are some close contenders, but yeah. What else did you? I have? found. I mean, yeah. yeah. What, what were your other favorites? Oh man, um, I actually I was really fascinated by the resident, the one about the devil's throat um, artistic colony, and I loved eight bites. Um, Oh gosh! Now I'm just like going through the table of contents. I loved. I've, the thing that I felt most haunted by after finishing this book was maybe the way she depicts the fading women, mm-hmm. the story about the disease that makes women fade, and the sort of love affair, and just so how biological it was. Like the mm-hmm. tendons you can see through the fading hand, and when the protagonist's elbow falls through her girlfriend's rib cage. Oh, also that sci-fi detail about how the faded women are. Uh, screwing with the ATMs and the voting machines. Yeah. So, yeah, I just thought that was so good. She <laughs> has uh, this. I just thought that. I mean, those, it was so. Um, it just really stuck with me. And she also has this. Back to like the personal universal thing. She has this amazing knack for making stories feel at once. I guess this gets to sort of how uh, they feel almost like personal essays and also like fairy tales like in the porn uh story the final story and also in the writer colony she uses first initials and blanks for the names Mm -hmm. and she could have just said she or he as she did in other stories to sort of generalize it she could have given them proper noun names as she does elsewhere but it's that same ghostly specificity like a you know, like much like with the women stitched into the dresses in that one story, you get this sort of spectral sense of someone who's real, who lived and suffered, who's kind of vacated the premises. Uh, I don't know, just the, it feels almost like a fairy tale that might be passed on through generations and generations. And then the woman who told it is kind of incrementally erased from it. Who mm. knows if it's is this complicated at all? But I just that was a neat little trick I thought she played. Yeah. I mean, maybe we can talk a little bit in more detail about the husband stitch in particular and like why it um, felt so like emotionally potent. Um, if anyone wants to. <laughs> I did love that one. I mean, why? I guess I'm curious what what made what elevated that story above the other stories for you? I did like them all. I feel like it's almost sacrilege to say this, but I I I love I think she is so talented, but I felt over over time, uh, I got slightly bored. Seems too strong, but the, I would say the approach that felt so light footed and peculiar mm-hmm. and startling up top started to feel a little more tendentious as it went on. And again, she's so talented, and this is such a universally beloved for good reason book that I hate to even say this, but. Um, I just am amazed by her brain, but I, you know, the, I loved the Law and Order episode summaries. Did I want to read an entire novella's worth? I did not. It was more of a genius concept than an actual <laughs> story. But you know, does it matter that I didn't want to read all of them? No, they were still wonderful. Anyway, I'm curious for what you guys think about uh, what made Husband Stitch so particularly good in the context of the book overall. It's just um, like she's playing with all of these, all the things that sci-fi, horror, fairy tales can let you do, but it's the story itself is so uh it's so tight and uh it's it's so 
technically, it, it felt, felt to me again rereading it, um, uh, just so technically proficient and just, um, it's a whole life that she really kind of puts down on the page or the story about an entire marriage, you know, and the way that she leaps through time, the way that she seems to, um, have this knack for alighting on the perfect detail is just, um, it's uncanny. And I think that some of the other stories are a bit, a bit more looser. They're more digressive. They're more, um, but this one is just, it just has this kind of pacing to it and this rhythm. I mean, I remember picking up this book and this is not a genre that I necessarily, you know, really love to read or seek out, you know, but, I, you know, I was looking as I go, maybe I'll, you know, review this one. I read the first page and there was just like a certain kind of, um, intensity and, and, and of the language and a certain kind of tightness in, in the sentences and a certain kind of, um, you know, that feeling that you're, when you're kind of reading a master and you kind of know that you just trust, you know, wherever this is going, it's going to take me someplace so strange and so specific. And so, um, yeah, and I just, uh, I think for me, yeah, it is even about the themes. It's just there's something that seems to happen paragraph to paragraph here that really makes it stand out. Yeah, that's beautifully I said. I think for me, it, it just felt like kind of the thesis statement or kind of like a distillation mm-hmm. of like what the entire book is interested in. Just this idea of characters who do or don't have knowledge about the kind of world that they and we live in. Like that's sort of like the central question um, in a lot of the stories is like who gets it? Who sees the nature of this world clearly with all of the all the violence and, and the misogyny, but also just sort of like what pleasure can be, what sex can be, what like, you know, it, it doesn't have to be heterosexual, like all these sort of possibilities that she is opening up to us. And what I guess I find so like refreshing and cool about this book is often when you have a sort of a sense of like, well, do the characters have the knowledge or don't they? The reader is on the same page as the author. Like we're like a step ahead of the characters. But here I feel like she, the author is a step ahead of us or many steps ahead of us. And we are at the same level as the characters. And she's showing us this like new or different or more complicated world. And we like sort of know, but we're also sort of like the woman with the ribbon around her neck who don't really realize that we're in, in a story. We don't quite get like exactly where we are and she has an alternative in mind that we can't quite see i think that's perfect i think like that's the feeling that i got when i read the story that it felt like it was happening to me you know not the events of the story but the story was acting on me in the way that information was being shown and it just culminates in that perfect perfect final paragraph right which is just Mm. um yeah i just wanted to like scan it it's just so um yeah, it's just so shocking. Even though you get it, you you know at a certain point you know it's coming, you know it's coming. But then how she carries it off is is really rather um, amazing. I agree. I love that ending so much. Uh, feel like I don't want to spoil it for our no. listeners in case. Now you probably have already read it, but well, you probably know what happens because uh, it happens in the fairy tale itself. Her head falls off. Yeah. But the way it's done is like ecstatic and inevitable and moving and also tragic because she dies. Obviously, her head falls off. Uh, But God, it's so good. It's really a remarkable story. Well, that's a question, too. I mean, do you think this is a happy ending? Her head falling off? Yeah. Hmm. No, no, I would say no. But it's there's a resignation to it. I mean, she has decided to like cease the coyness of her, uh, you know, the the extended 
back and forth with her husband where she kind of deflects and deflects and she just she gives into it and there's a there's a real sadness there yeah the other story that strikes me as uh self-contained and satisfying in the way uh Paul laid out was the story about it's just so sort of sideways and deftly done it's like a series of vignettes about different romantic liaisons this woman has as the apocalypse is happening, like as plague is is creeping through humankind. I read this one a long time ago, so I forgot the specifics, but it's just laid out. It just it the the way she captures the kind of collapse of civilization is so oblique and subtle and interesting. Uh, and at the end of the story, my note in the margin was just like, "Whew," yeah. <laughs> because uh, it was really satisfying. But they're not; they don't all set out to do that. Yeah, it's I, that, that story, it's so good. And, like, every time I look at it or, or think about it, I'm like, why should it work as well as it does, you know? It's not that one anecdote is building on another necessarily or even responding to it, you know? Um, they're each so specific and they're, they're each their own encounter. Um, I mean, also maybe it's a good time to talk now or even a little bit later. Um, uh, I just think she writes sex almost better than anyone right now. I just don't yeah, know anybody totally who can do this. And, yeah. I'm, and, like, on a personal, not, like, a level of a critic, but, like, I just haven't seen queerness written like this, you know, in forever, you know, um, and, and certainly not like women loving women in this particular way. It was just so, um, it's just so matter of fact, it makes it sound silly, mm-hmm. but it just feels so without fanfare. It's not metaphorical. It's just, um, I don't know. She, she wants, um, she once quoted one of her teachers, Alan Gergane, as saying that writers should always give their characters a good role in the hay because they've worked hard and they deserve it. <laughs> and there's that feeling of this sort of like, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, she she just, I mean, I think we've talked a little bit about how cause she can write dread so well. And I think she can write dread so well because she writes pleasure so well and she writes joy right. so well. Um, but yeah, that story that you mentioned just, um, is, is yeah. just phenomenal. I think it's called Inventory. I think it's, yeah, Inventory. Yeah, right. Huh, that's uh, – I love that quote from her teacher. It is just so – it's remarkable. Even in, in kind of reciting the details of inventory, it sounds yeah. kind of banal and predictable, but it's not. Somehow it's just so deft beat by beat and it's just – it is also so impressive that she's so sharp and terrifying on sexual violence and the vulnerabilities yeah. of the female body and yet she shows desire to be a force mm-hmm. as intense and overwhelming as fear yeah. And that comes through story after story. Yeah. yeah. I think inventory kind of – did you guys ever read that um, old Julian Barnes book, Flaubert's Parrot, back in the day? Um, and in, in the book, no. he sort of plays with, like, writing – there's so many different ways that you can tell Flaubert's life. So he says, here's a list of Flaubert's life featuring just the triumphs. Then he tells the exact same life mm-hmm. but just writes mm-hmm. about the tragedies. <laughs> then he writes about uh, – and so in this, in this way that, like, inventory at the end of the world, like, this – you know, it, it is almost like a way of like writing this woman's biography just through the people that she's been close to and intimate with, you know, um, the good and the bad and the horror. But it's just, yeah, it's it's really, um, it's so un- it's so unusual and so uh, um, difficult for me to even think through why it should work as well as it does. Yeah, well, I think it's also interesting if you, because it's sort of in a tradition, like it, it reminded me of that Lydia Davis story. Where I don't know, I don't think it's called inventory, but basically there's, 
it's the one when the relationship is over and the man is bitter about it and he's sort of tabulating all of the money that he's spent and it's oh, sort of the story. story of this yeah. yeah it's the story of the of the vanished relationship or, or the past relationship told through numbers and it you know it's it's a brilliant story but this this is like a this is a version of that conceit that feels totally different and also in conversation with that type of story. Um, I wouldn't say that this is sort of like the feminist version because I think that that story is like more complicated than just sort of like showing a certain type of male um, bean counting and and like something about capitalism and romance. But um, it, it was cool to sort of read one um, in light of the other. Again, this feels sacrilegious, but just in the spirit of contrarianism, were there any stories in this book that you felt didn't work as well? Yeah, I'm with you on the uh, Law and Order story. Where I just, you know, again, like I so I was so interested in the premise. I loved to think about it and talk about it. But in the reading, like I, I think it, you know, could have benefited from a little whittling down. Like as I was reading it, I was really right. <laughs> trying to figure out just how is this building? What's the crescendo? I mean, again, it's also like a, you know. Um, you know what I actually wanted was it, I wanted it to sort of have some of the virtues of law and order itself, you know, like huh. a rhythm mm-hmm. that you can feel, a certain kind of way of repetition, a certain kind of, um, yeah, and I just, I felt like you know, that was the one that I, I, you know, kind of struggled to get through. That's very well said. I yeah. agree. Yeah. <laughs> and it was such a set piece in the middle of the book, yeah. and I kept flipping to the, I was like, oh, this is so charming and funny and Oh, there's so many more pages left. <laughs> right. Going back to your point um, about dream logic, uh, I guess maybe I just have a limited appetite for like processing things that are like emotionally powerful, but I have no idea what they mean. And yeah, like when right. you keep layering on, oh, and here is a ghost with bells for eyes, and then here is a mysterious demon, and then here is like a heartbeat. Like it's just after a while, you just feel a little bit afloat in our arcana and then you don't know know um how to sort of think about any of it so i think i i just felt a little bit too alienated right as it kept going i almost wondered if i were more invested in the actual properties of law and order if i would be if it would feel like more of an extended inside joke to me like i did love benson and stabler or those are the names and the sort of like doppelgangers that emerged but um i suffice it to say I, i did not care about them through the entirety of the time that i spent with them but again, I emerged from that story thinking, does it matter that this was kind of unpleasant to read? Like it was still so – the ingenuity and the strangeness yeah. just like, you know, tickled me so much that it almost felt like it was OK. I felt like maybe I could have even skimmed it and had the same experience as mm-hmm. it sort of as it was built to be had. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean I wonder if like given all that we're saying, I wonder if that's the reason why like the husband stitch seems to have moved so many people and, you know, because it does – take certain elements of horror or fantasy very judiciously. Everything else in that world is absolutely recognizable, right? Like right. the courtship, the marriage, the the son that's going to go study engineering. It's it's every like we know all the rules except there's this one thing that comes from this other universe. And right. I think that's a good point. also for me like somebody who doesn't read so much in this in like the genres that this book is maybe in conversation with, you know, it was a bit more it had it, had, it just had more power for me, you know, um and more of a sense of uh, yeah, it, it just was legible, I think, in that sense. Yes. I uh, I totally agree. Actually, that Parish Review interview had another 
quote from her that I loved about how when horror fails, ah, it's because the writer or director isn't drawing on those things. They're just yeah. throwing throwing blood wherever and seeing what sticks. <laughs> what a lovely and true. I love that we both like yeah. kindled to this this parish review interview. She's just so in, it's interesting to hear her talk. She kind of, I mean, yeah. obviously she talks in the same. Uh, bizarre and inventive way. It's just so uh, it's so appealing and charming. But yeah, um, yeah. I love that's exact. That's so true. She does the way she does horror feels like it really dredges up specific female anxieties and fears about our bodies and our relationships yes. and our families. And it's not just death, illness, dismemberment, blood. You know, the it, the fears she's drawing on are so much more textured and original. And right, that's like what, the yeah. oh my gosh, the pustules, like the growth, oh, so um, gross, so, <laughs> so gross. Yeah, <laughs> like she's so good at infection mm-hmm. and like inflammation, and I mean her stories are kind of inflaming. Um, oh, I'm glad you mentioned the pustules, but oh <laughs> god, that's like some really a plus body horror <laughs> that is also thematically deft and and yeah, just great. And she's like a really good. I mean, you're right, and I think there's. You know, I, I went and I was reading all this, these interviews with her, and she's so interesting on the topic of her own work. And it actually made me wish there were more. And I know that there are some critics who talk about horror and genre, but I just wish there were more. Like, I just think that there's something so interesting um, to hear writers break down why horror works, why she does it. She's this great, great interview where she talks about really loving genres that. Um, act on the body. So the way that when we're reading horror, what happens in our brain and our um, and in our body is 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 it has a um, physical effect. You know, our heartbeat starts you know going a little bit faster. Adrenaline is released in the body, like all of these things. So she's just she's interested in that kind of these genres that she calls intimate genres, horror, erotic, all of these things. And I just wish that there were more critics. You know, I, I mean, I can you know read and and sort of like think through some of this stuff, but I was just, you know, Machado's fantastic, and I just wish there were more people explaining um, why some of these genres are important and what they do and why, and and more about their history and more about, um, you know, why they matter now. So that was my my moment of rue, you know. I, I wish that we didn't have to yeah, keep turning yeah. to her for <laughs> these explanations. But, but, you know, we have some people. I think Laura Miller is very good at stuff like this, and... Um, yeah, Laura yeah. Miller really is a good – well, we'll just take this opportunity to <laughs> praise Laura Miller. Who, uh, she's really good on genre. She really gets it. Yeah, but it did, yeah. It did, this book this book maybe feel like exactly just like how, how siloed things can become, you know, especially if you're mm-hmm. mainly reading and writing and reviewing literary fiction, you know. And I just sort of felt this this pang of like, you know, I you know, wish I had and, and should be, you know, reading a bit more widely when it comes to fiction. You know, I feel like – you know, I'm glad that this book is breaking out, but they're they're bound to be others, you know, that are playing with stuff in ways that are this fantastic. Right. Yeah. Especially when her breed of horror, when when um, Machado's breed of horror doesn't seem to be like this quality that you import from a different universe, but it's more about recognizing what is there, but what people refuse to recognize is horrifying. So like the potatoes again. Mm-hmm. Like the idea is that there that there are real toes <laughs> in the in the potato aisle and no one is commenting on it in the same way that uh, there is that wonderful um piece that went up today or not today this week in in the week about how no one really talks about like female pain female sexual pain is just a reality that we all negotiate and uh, did you guys see this essay? yeah lily yeah. loof bro yeah yeah and great. it seemed to me that like the horror the horror of that piece was here is a real thing that is that is horrifying, but no one will call it 
horrifying. No one will acknowledge that it's horrifying. And so it's just sort of like the silence about it that's so creepy and scary. And that also felt like a lot of what um, these stories were were um, generating horror from, that kind of situation where something is real and something is scary, but no one will look at it or talk about it. God, yeah. she has such a knack for, for ginning up or sort of finding horror in domestic scenes, like mm. in the body, but also this other image that stuck with me, which was when she describes a shower head as ringed like the parasitic mouth of a lamprey. Like, do I have a no- <laughs> and now I feel like I know what a lamprey is. I can see it vividly, but uh, it doesn't matter because that's like a, just an astonishing image. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sentence by sentence. Yeah. Yeah, she really does. Um, and, like, I mean, I think it's also really interesting. And I, I feel like, you know, if I were to go back, like, um, I wish I'd written about this. I wish more people, and maybe people have written about this, but what was also just astonishing um, to me upon rereading it was just um, that there are shades of queer relationships, especially relationships between women, and where she talks about intimidation, she talks about violence, she talks about mm. a whole spectrum of things that really don't ever make it into fiction as far as I can tell, you know? And, um, yes, I mean, again, like, that felt so, um, and again, she's not doing it in this way, um, in this way other than that's the world that she wants to write about and she wants to read about, and it just didn't, as she said, like, she couldn't find it anywhere else. And it, it just, like, yeah, it still feels astonishing to me when I read this. And I'm just like, this. I, I, I haven't read a, a contemporary novel that's quite so... Um, explicit about this stuff and it's it's crazy that it feels so hidden you know that people yeah. don't understand Another... about violence in these relationships and they don't understand about you know anyway go on Oh, no, I was just going to quote from your own piece because I just rem- remember that another a thing that stuck in my head as I was reading this book was your uh, formulation that something, a whiff of something disreputable lingers, mm-hmm. something slightly kinky, yeah. just to quote your own words back to you. But that <laughs> captured to me so well the kind of aftertaste of the book. Yeah. Uh, kind of really, it was one of yeah. the most interesting things about it. Yeah. Can I ask you what you guys make of the title? I spent a lot of time staring at the cover, which is obviously yeah. – Tendons and well, that gets back to you know the sort of biological oh, factors. Tendons, of the, yeah, it's a, the tendons in a oh. neck. There is this, there's this like Eduardo Galliano quote where he talks about um, our hatred of our bodies, and he says, you know, that science. I'm paraphrasing wildly, but he says something like, you know, um, religion tells us body is a sin, science tells us that body is disease, advertising tells us that body is a business, but the body says, mm-hmm. I'm a fiesta. And oh, kind that's of, a great that quote. Awesome. Yeah, so and so, like, it kind of reminds me of that, and like the sort of chaos of it, and the sort of beauty of it, and the sort of madness, and all of that seem very encapsulated in this book. What we people tell us, what our bodies are, what the body says to itself, and um, yeah, right. That's such a good quote. I mean, I yeah. I mean, I basically that. Uh, uh, that it sounds exactly like what I think the meaning of the the title of the book is. I mean, it's also the idea of the the body as a space, kind of overrun by and populated by other people. Oh yeah, um, that's great. Yeah, and uh, it's not. Is it a quote that shows up in the in any of the stories? I don't remember it. What? I don't think so. Yeah. Her one? body and other parties. Oh, just the title. Oh, no, her body and no, other parties. I don't think so. No, no, no. Yeah, I I just like I 
realize that I love it and I don't really know why. I think maybe what you're saying that, that it's kind of a riot, like yeah. my, the, the body is a riot. It's a good time. And it's also, you know, a little bit chaotic and a little bit dangerous. And, and they're, they're, you know, it's a site of pain as well, but. And it's um, not my body in other parties. It's yeah. her body in the part. So there's a kind of, uh, there's a co-opting. One line that I remember Machado once said in passing and she goes, you know, for many years I was unkind to my body, but now I'm resolving to be kinder to her. And I like that moment uh-huh. of estrangement. And that, that, again, just goes back to the title, right? Like, so there is that idea of, of um, you know, her body and other parties. Yet the body is some other place other than where you are. Well, the body is another party. It's another it, – it's such a vague <laughs> way of, devo- of oh. denoting like a someone, right? Like, yeah. like a presence or an individual. But I guess that's another question is like – what status do we afford the body? What status do we afford the female body in particular? Like, is are, is it a human? Is it a person? What rights and qualities? Like, right. I don't know. That's It is like a really kind of unbounded way to talk about like a person. And I guess also there's a sense of someone who's involved in something like you're party to a crime or party yeah, to yeah. a scheme. Yeah. Right. So, Katie, if you don't think that's tendons on the cover, what do you think it is? I thought it was a red party dress. But <laughs> 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 uh, I concede that you are probably right. Huh, I guess I see that. It has a sort of silken quality to it, except there's it's an like ear the on the top of that party dress. Oh. Right? Oh, man. <laughs> That's true. Oh, God, that is an ear. Oh, thanks, Laura. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Well, it seems uh, it seems fair to say that we all really in- admired this book. I know, so boring. Yeah. I know. I'm trying to think of anything I can like. I don't know, but yeah, it's um, it's just really inventive. I mean, I come from the same place as you, Pearl, and that I don't. Um, fairy tales are not my genre. I don't. I feel like Katie is probably the one of the three of us who who sort of feels a most of kindred spiritship with the genre of the fairy tale, if you can call it a genre. That's kind of a loose uh, descriptor, but. Uh, and so I, you know, this isn't a book that I might have ordinarily picked up if I hadn't heard such wonderful things about it, but um, but it's just so much more, it's so much more strange and complicated than that. And there have been so many kind of reimagined fairy tales released yes. over the past few years, and will continue to be released. Um, Mallory Orberg has a as stories reimagined fairy tales coming out that I'm sure will oh be lovely gosh. and interesting in a totally wow. different way. I think that's true, unless I've hallucinated. Uh, that upcoming release, but um, but I've never read anything quite like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that I I, I think I was also just struck by um, what turns me off about books that p- sometimes play with these sort of fantasy elements is that they they sometimes can seem so like um, you know a little self congratulatory smug like look at how well I'm a mat look at like all the craziness I'm ginning up for you and mm. there's something that I think that we've all been talking about that just feels. Um, really organic about a lot of the stuff that comes out in the book. And I think also right now it felt really lovely to read it because it is a book that, you know, is uncertain about, not uncertain, uncertain isn't the, the right way to say it, but, you know, it isn't advancing, you know, a particular, you know, one particular thesis. You know, like these stories have certain elements as we've been t- talking about, like certain feminist elements and certain, 
you know, this, that, and the other, but it's not, it's not anything that can be, you know, um, distilled into a sentence, which feels really nice right now, I think, for, mm, for me, you know, right. when we're thinking yeah. about women and violence and power and contented, all of these things and horror and trauma in the body, to have something that can feel diffuse, that's something that needs a story that isn't going to just be a soundbite, I think felt really um, tonic for me as I was reading it and rereading the book. Yeah, yeah. And I think, like, there's a sort of flattened wildness that you can get with some of the, like, fairy tale retellings. Like, a, And I think probably self-congratulatory is a better way to, to talk about the same quality. But, like, if the sort of big message of, of like, a feminist retelling is, is oh, this is – or you know, this is feminist. Uh, you can also get sort of like, this is wild. This is dark. This is like gleaming, you know? And, and she's just, everything is more nuanced. Like it's cerebral. It's intelligent. It's also like beautiful and lyrical. There's just, she will not be confined in any kind of space. And I found it difficult to sort of talk about why these, um, modified or, or sort of like remixed fairy tales are so different from a lot of other modified or remixed fairy tales. Um, and I think that that's it. They're just so much more multidimensional. Yeah. And I think they're also harnessed to the body in a way that keeps things really mm. honest to me. Like, I think that's where the writing about sex and the sort of really frank eroticism of some of these stories just brings them tumbling back down to earth, you know? Um, and they're funny, you know, so she's sort of, you know, it, it isn't just about like, um, trying to cast a spell or the enchantment, you know? It, she's sarcastic mm. and she's cutting little asides and her narrators sleep with terrible women. And it's just, um, yeah, so there's a certain kind of, you know, on the flip side, there's a certain kind of just pragmatism about like just being alive and going through life in this like, body that will betray you and having terrible taste in girls that kind of just keeps things right. feeling fairly familiar to me, perhaps. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah, yeah, me too. Well, on that note, you guys, this has been such a joy. Um, thank you so much for coming in and talking about her body and other parties. Thank you so much, Katie Waldman. It was a pleasure. <laughs> I know. Thanks, Katie. We're going to miss you. Okay. Aww. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Audiobook Club. If you like this show, check out El Gabfest and Español. Slate's first Spanish-language podcast. Led by award-winning Mexican journalist, broadcaster, and writer Leon Krause, the hosts, all leading Latino journalists, discuss the news of the week in a no-holds-barred lucha libre. They focus on U.S. politics and current events, but they also take on international news as well as sports and culture. Every week, they have a newsmaking guest. Recent invitees include journalists Jorge Ramos and Maria Elena Salinas. Congressman Luis Guterres and Senator Tim Kaine. And for Slate Plus listeners, there's an English language segment so that non-Spanish speakers can hear at least some of the panelists' thoughts. Check out El Dabfest and Español every Thursday morning. You'll find the show pages for this and every episode of the Audiobook Club at slate.com slash abc. Visit our Facebook page where you can leave a comment on this episode. That address is facebook.com slash slateabc. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, which helps other people discover the show. Steve Lichtai provided engineering assistance. The podcast was produced and edited by Benjamin Frisch. For Parle Segal and Laura Bennett, I'm Katie Waldman. Thanks for listening. The Audiobook Club will be back next month.